Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Coming up, a new book looks at the history of the Chicago theater scene and what makes it so special. It was about the work. That's where the focus was, and that's a theme I heard over and over and over again. But first, Jeff Sessions and Hillary Clinton are about as far apart as you can get when it comes to politics. But they're both members of the United Methodist Church. So using those two as markers, it's easy to see why the church has wrestled with issues like gay marriage and LGBT clergy for decades. Now it appears there will be a split. The more conservative faction will break away and the allocation of the church's considerable assets are being hashed out by lawyers. The only thing everyone is waiting on is an official vote. That'll be held in May in Minneapolis. Here with her thoughts on the schism is Hannah Carden. She's the pastor at the Wicker Park location of Urban Village Church, a series of United Methodist churches across Chicago. Welcome to Reset. Thank you. So the UMC has been debating issues of sexuality and sexual orientation since the early 1970s. But explain what happened in St. Louis last year that has pushed the church to this moment. A vote took place that put into place much harsher penalties for the same homophobic policies that had been technically the um, policies of the church for a very long time. So the consequences for clergy who chose to do same-sex marriages, for queer people trying to get ordained were going to be much more significant and more for their congregations. And it was also, I think, simply a testimony to where many of the, the church were that caused great mourning for those of us who are queer or who love queer people and see the ways in which God is doing so many good things through queer and queer affirming churches of how far away we were from many of our colleagues in the church. And in conversations with, with other congregants, is the sense that that vote represented where the majority of the church was? I think congregants understood what is true was that which was that it represented how big the division was right. between different parts of the church our the church that i serve urban village church many of our sites are majority lgbtq we from day 1 we do marriages we nourish and hire and are led by lgbtq people that's our reality and that's our reality in this region where that's the reality for many churches in other parts of the country and other parts of the world, that's absolutely not the case. And so I, I think it really demonstrated that, that we're living incredibly different realities of what it means to be alive, to love Jesus, and to be church in this time. Well, last Friday, the Council of Bishops' Office announcement that a, quote, proposed agreement on the separation of the United Methodist Church um, has been signed by church leadership. Regional Bishop Sally Dick said she and others, quote, came to the painful conclusion that we just can't go on like this. While a pastor in southeast suburban Lansing was quoted by the Tribune as saying, I don't think we're in a split. I think we're in transition. What does your gut tell you about Mm -hmm. the church's fate? A way that I often think about things in my life is uh, how would things be in the kingdom? And then what is the next step forward that reduces harm, right? Because I think the hard thing is that the kingdom reality of the church is that everyone would realize what harm has been done. We would come to the revelation on this day of epiphany that 
God made LGBTQ people and has filled all of them with enormous love and gifts and light and the harm we are doing must stop. And we would acknowledge that harm and we would um, do reparations for it and we would move forward together. No matter what happens, that's not what's going to happen next. And so it's not going to feel satisfying. It's not going to feel good. It's not going to feel right. And we have to do something. <laughs> we have to move forward somehow. Um, and so many proposals have been made for this big meeting in May. And one of them is this, um, this one that just came out this week that seems more likely than some of the others to pass because people from different constituency groups that have pretty radically different ideas about what should happen agree on it. And so my gut instinct is we don't know anything until May. <laughs> this seems like one possibility for moving forward with less harm, but we are a radically democratic denomination. Nothing's real until everybody votes on it. And so I'm sort of waiting. <laughs> when you talk about harm, yeah, help us understand what, what you mean by that. I mean... Kids who grow up in churches where they know that everyone who's there believes that they aren't as good as everybody else, <laughs> that they can't be a pastor, that they can't get married, that they can't talk about who they are. To me, every single human being is like a Christmas present, right? God made that person one time. They've never been made before. They'll never be made again. And when we create a world and a church where they have to tamp down the light of the fire within because they have to keep secrets about who they are, or when they say who they are, they are met with derision or I love you so much you have to change, which isn't love at all. <laughs> or they're met with, I don't really want to talk about that. It causes harm. Were you raised in the Methodist Church? I was not. I was raised non-religious. Uh, so I'm a convert. I was a nun, N-O-N-E. Mm -hmm. And that's the other side that I do want to acknowledge the morning of. I had this profound call to ministry from God when I was in my late teens. And I did, um, like I looked at all the denominations mm -hmm. and picked one, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? An, an opportunity not a lot of people get. And one of the reasons I chose the United Methodist Church was that I grew up moving around all the time, different towns, different continents, different places. And I had never really felt at home. And I looked at the United Methodist Church, and it was the only church that would ordain me that was in every single place I had lived growing up. It was in rural Mississippi, and it was in Chicago, and it was in Tokyo, and it was in Hong Kong. And there's something Christ-like about trying to connect us across all of our boundaries. I have deep love for colleagues in parts of the church who are probably not going to be a part of the same church as me anymore. I want to acknowledge the, the, the real mourning about that, that we were trying to be together and that we've done good things, and none of that makes this level of harm worth it or okay. The more conservative segments of the UMC say that while God's grace is available to everyone, homosexuality and same-sex marriage is incompatible with Christian teachings. As a convert, especially someone who chose this religion, how did you come to a different conclusion? The pastor who baptized me was a gay man living with his partner, raising a child. And from the from the first church I ever went to was inclusive. I actually didn't know how bad it could be until my second try around. <laughs> and so my vision from the beginning has been, how do we know the fullness of who God is? You know, I was... I was raised by parents. The second people I, 
I'm a straight cis person. My parents are straight cis people. The first people they introduced me to after I was born were their best friends, a gay couple. I grew up in this world, in this time, in this century. (laughs) So for me, it has never been a conflict. None of the arguments make sense to me. They all feel like they've been made up afterwards to justify discomfort, to to justify hatred. It's just really clear. David loved Jonathan with a love that was not the love of women. Felicity and Perpetua gave each other a kiss of peace as they died in service of their faith. The first convert in the Bible is an Ethiopian eunuch who lived outside the gender norms of his society and of ours. LGBTQ people have been around as long as God has been around. There's just no conflict for me. When people seek churches, often it's in search of community. Yeah. And very deep, strong relationships form within that community. And when a schism like this happens, sometimes those relationships break. Hmm. How much hope do you have that despite this doctrinal difference, relationships can still be maintained? A lot. A lot of hope. We are different from one another across all kinds of lines, and yet we find ways to be deeply invested in one another's flourishing and love. Um, I think there are probably some relationships on the margin that have been too characterized by abuse to continue in the future. But that's not the majority of relationships that there are going to be across whatever happens next. I believe in (laughs) a God who does miracles and makes wonderful things happen. And I believe that every person is a mix of harm they've caused and glory that is within them. And I think we're going to find ways to love each other. And particularly when it comes to the United Methodist Church, which has always had had a really strong witness of service and justice in the world, ways to try and make transformation that we can all agree needs to happen in the public square. That's my hope. I mean, we'll see. What kinds of conversations have you been having with people on the other side of this divide? (laughs) Um, Challenging ones. I mean, because of my particular ministry, that's not the place where I spend the most of my time, but I respect and support people who do spend their time that way. I have some of them in my church. I have some of them as colleagues. I made a choice at some point to stop trying to convince people of the belovedness and worth of my congregation and to put more of my energy into loving my congregation as they deserve to be loved. Other people have a different call to really make that bridge happen. Um, And I think it's hard, long work, but work that has been done before um, and work that is possible. You talk about building a bridge from to use your example from the people doing this this work in your congregation across the divide. Are you getting uh, similar attempts at bridge building in the other direction? No. Uh, I mean, I'm not. I'm also a person who's largely focused on my local church here in the city, which is living out a particular reality, right? I'm not major power broker in this 13 million person denomination. I know I don't think people reach out to our LGBTQ leadership um, in the same way that it seems we're supposed to reach out to every single other person, no matter how much they've hurt us. I think Jesus has a really clear witness that the most marginalized person and the most marginalized part of the community is where you learn to get to know Jesus the best. And I think all of us would be served by uh, doing that a little more (laughs) in our everyday lives and in our churches. 
I have a much, much wider and more diverse set of friendships and people who I genuinely love than most of my friends do because of the church. <laughs> like the church has brought me into deep relationship with people of different generations than me, races, immigration status, political belief, ideological belief. And they are thick and strong and beautiful because love is real and we can and Jesus is who he says he is. And that doesn't get us out of paying attention to what justice looks like. That's Pastor Hannah Carden. She's a teaching pastor at the Wicker Park location of Urban Village Church. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Long before Chicago became the mecca for improvisational performance and collaboration, the city was once viewed as a theater desert. It's a reality that's hard to imagine now, given the talent and productions bursting out of the city today. In his recent book, Ensemble, An Oral History of Chicago Theater, Mark Larson traces the roots of Chicago's theater scene and the city's ensemble ethos. And he tells the story through the people who made it happen. The Chicago theater expert and oral historian joins me now in studio to discuss his book and more. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So what led you to write this book? <laughs> I've always been fascinated by the story of Chicago theater. Theater. I I grew up here. I was always interested in theater in the '70s. I wanted to be a part of it, but uh-huh. that didn't work work out quite. But I'd always been fascinated by it. And one of the things that fascinated me was the fact that it went from, as you said, a theater desert, which was Bob Sickinger's line, to what it is today. And today we have over 250 theaters here. And so, how did that happen? Yeah. Was kind of the question that I had in my mind over the course of my lifetime. Well, you interviewed more than 300 actors, directors, other key people who played a part in Chicago's theater movement. Anytime you do interviews, I know from experience, it's really fascinating to draw stories out of people. But what was the process like for you? How did you ask the right questions? Well, that's assuming I did. But Ah. (laughs) at at first, it really is very, very exploratory. I have a distinct advantage over you in that I didn't have a live audience Uh at the time it was happening. And I could spend an hour, two hours talking to people, finding out what what their story is. And then out of that, I often went back for a second interview and asked more pointed questions. Mm -hmm. But really, it was an exploration. I didn't go in with a lot of questions. I just was curious about what their story was. What do they want to share with me? And then we played it that way. Were there some themes that emerged as you were doing these conversations that, that gave you some sense of how Chicago grew into the theater city it is now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as I worked and as I continued doing this, it was, it was over a course of four and a half years. Yeah. And themes started to emerge. And that then, going back to your first question, began to lead me to specific questions to check out. Is, is this true? You know, Mm -hmm. one of them was the idea that the the city works as a kind of ensemble itself. It's not just a lot of ensembles and a lot of separate theater groups. But what I kept hearing over and over and over again is that we help each other and we, uh, you know, we operate like one large ensemble. Somebody said uh, it's like one large repertory company, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's a lot of sharing and there's a lot of helping. The other thing I found really interesting that kept coming up was the way that the older ones, the older um, artists, would help the newer ones to the city. And that's part of the ethos of the place, I think. Well, here's a bit of actress Lori Metcalf talking about that ensemble ethos. Nobody thought, I'm going to use this as a platform for myself. It was about how are we going to make this the best thing possible? 
it was a collaborative from the beginning. That's interesting. Nobody thought of it as a platform for myself. Was that something you heard repeated? I did hear that a lot. Yeah. It was uh, later on in that uh, clip, she says something about it's about the work. Mm-hmm. I said, so it's about uh, helping each other. She said, it was about the work. That's where the focus was. And that's a theme I heard over and over and over again. How do you think about Chicago as compared to New York or L.A.? How is it different? I'll qualify that by saying I've never lived either of those places, Mm -hmm. but I've talked to people who have and have worked there. And one of the things I I heard a lot was that it really is about how do I get myself ahead here? And here there's a real commitment to both the work and to the the company that you're working with. And I don't want to over-romanticize that. I think I, I always run that danger. But I think there's some very distinct truth in that. Recently, I went to New York and did a, a talk for the uh, students and the, and the professors at Hunter College at the invitation of Greg Mosier, who used to run the Goodman years mm-hmm. ago. And he titled my talk for me. He said, why audition when you can start your own darn company? <laughs> and he saw that as part of Chicago's ethos, mm-hmm. you know, and a distinct difference. And when I talked to uh, the students and when I talked to the professors, there was that sense of, I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. We should say, as you said, you don't want to over-romanticize the scene here, but it has had its fair share of friction to get where it is right now. What were some of those moments of struggle or or failure that that emerged uh, through these conversations? There's a lot of it. (laughs) Bernie Sollins, who was one of the founders of Second City, said something in his memoir about this is the risk capital. This is a place where you can take risks and Mm -hmm. fail. I think there's some truth to that. You don't want to always be failing, but with that comes uh, some failures then, some real busts. The Goodman Theater was doing the uh, Christmas Carol, and they had great success with that, and they decided to move it into the Auditorium Theater, and that was going to be a great thing for two reasons. They could fill the place, and the other thing was um, they could have another show running at the same time at Christmas time. What ended up happening was it this intimate show that worked so well on the Goodman stage was in this huge, vast area, and it just bombed. It was just terrible. But it was an interesting risk. Yeah. You know, it was was worth taking. Well, in your interview with actor, director, and screenwriter Alan Arkin, he wonders if it would have been better if Mm -hmm. he stayed in Chicago. Here's a bit of him talking about that. One of the things I think about periodically, I think a lot of me maybe... Maybe it would have been smarter had I stayed in Chicago, because exactly what you're talking about, there was there was a sense of us against the world, a sense of family that was really genuine with with the, when I was at Second City, and I've looked for that my my entire career and found it maybe six or eight times. Hmm. When I hear him say that, it, it sounds like there is a community here that makes failure a little a little easier, makes taking that risk a little easier because yeah. people are just kind of rooting for you. What did you make of that? I think audiences are rooting for you. Kate Piet Eckert at, at Steep Theater told me something once about um, somebody came in, a, a patron came in and said, I want to renew my subscription. I also want you to know I didn't like anything that you did last <laughs> year. But it's, it, there's a sense of what's next. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, as you mentioned, not everybody has a, a romantic view of Chicago's ensemble ethos. And here's a bit of theater director and stage actor David Cromer talking about that. My thing is, is finding a way to allow 
the Midwestern desire to to disappear and to not be bothered, <laughs> mm. combined with the the idea that a group can you know can make sort of great work that allows for um, a very satisfying experience of working together. Chubb was very curious about this, and and it wasn't the ensemble was a romantic notion. It was an ensemble with a responsibility. The responsibility to the group it was kind of a socialist thing. Unpack what he what he's saying there for us a bit. He was referring to Sheldon Patinkin too, who was a part of uh, the Playwrights Theater Club, going all the way back to 1953, and seems to have had a way of interacting with and inspiring companies up until his death, which was very recent, about the time I started the book. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, so I never got to talk to him. But what he's talking about there is it's not that romanticized idea of you know we're all in this together. And you have a responsibility. Once you become part of our ensemble, once you become part of our town, there is a responsibility to the whole. And I think that's different from the romantic notion of let's help Mm. each other out. Were there other interviews that really stayed with you or that surprised you? Oh, yeah, lots and lots. Joyce Piven, who was part of uh, Playwrights Theater Company in 1953, and her entire lifespan has really stretched across this entire time of the of Chicago theater movement. She started Piven Theater Workshop in the 70s with her husband, Byrne, still with us today. Mm-hmm. Turned out lots and lots and lots of talent like John Cusack mm-hmm. and his sisters, Joni, and so forth. But when I sat down to talk to her, her passion for this at that age still absolutely moved me. I I went just to hear about the school. She's the one who started talking to me with this extraordinary passion about Playwrights Theater Club in 1953, and that story has to get told. And I can still hear her saying that. I was extraordinarily moved by that. I went to see her that, you know, it it was still daylight and it got dark around us. No, we didn't turn the lights. It just got dark around us. And I went back to her maybe four times. I'm going to L.A. in about a week and I'm hoping to see her again. That really had an impression on me. As you said, this book took you more than four years to write. And I I would imagine that when you emerged from the other side of this that the way you thought about Chicago theater or the, or the way you viewed it, it must have shifted in, in some ways. You're asking me in a way, what did I learn from it? What yeah. did I take away and how did it change me? And I have to tell you, I had no idea, first off, the scope of what was here until I started digging into it. I actually told my publisher, this will take a year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What, I was very naive. But... um the scope of it, it just keeps unfolding and unfolding. The other thing was, we, we talked at the beginning about, let's, let's focus on six or seven exemplary companies that would kind of tell the story. But they're so interconnected, and you leave so much out if you do that, you know. So it, it takes the whole story to tell the whole story in a way. You know, we obviously couldn't, couldn't pull that off completely. But the interconnectedness I found very, very moving. And then that sense of ensemble that people have. Every day I got up to work on this book, which is a long book and a long process, I was so inspired by the things that I heard the day before. These scrappy kids in their 20s, they had no idea how to run a company, but they just kept plugging away. And I think that affected me. And it certainly kept me going. 
That's Mark Larson, author of Ensemble, an oral history of Chicago theater. He'll be giving a book talk tonight at Harold Washington Public Library at 6.30 p.m. and another one next Monday, January 13th. Seating is first come, first served, and for more information, visit Chicago Public Library's website at chipublive.org. We'll also tweet out a link. Mark, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's Reset. If you're not subscribed, do it now. We'll drop new conversations about Chicago into your feed six days a week. They're long enough to satisfy your curiosity, but just short enough that you'll be done by the time you get home from work or finish cooking dinner. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.